Isn't that great? Um, so those of us who have a, um, a, a really big ego, you're going to love this um, because it's about you this morning. Um, we're, we're happy to talk about humanity, actually. Humankind. Who are we as people? Our opening scripture texts that we read this morning, um, and by the way, hopefully you got a program and a pen. Um, if there's anything that you want to write down in the back, there's a note section. Um, you certainly can jot some of these things down for future reference for you to consider or meditate or think about on later. But um, the opening text that we read in Psalm chapter 8 asked the question, what is man? What is man? And that's a great question. Are we simply glorified animals? Are we simply the, the sum total of all the chemical reactions firing in our brains, occurring in our bodies? Is that what it means to be a human being? Just some kind of biological blob, some kind of creature that is here? Or are we more than this? And how about, did something go wrong? How many people know, like just intuitively, that there's something wrong with the world and that we have something to do with that wrongness? Like there's something wrong with us, in other words. And what is that? What is wrong with us? You know, these aren't new questions. These are the, the kinds of questions that man has been asking since the dawn of time and theorizing and philosophizing about it. And our culture has answers to these questions. And you should know that this morning, um, I'm going to give you the answers that Scripture gives. I understand that there might be other things that you might have questions about. Um, maybe things that in your mind seem contradictory to what I'm going to tell you. Um, and I think even there are some good responses that Scripture would give us and that the Christian faith could give us. I can't handle all of those questions in one sermon, so I hope that you'll be patient with me this morning in, for me, presenting to you what I think Scripture says about who we are. I mentioned to you a while back this uh, play called Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett. It's a, it's a quick read. Anyone can find it online and read it. It's pretty interesting. It's been done um, many times on different stages. And it pictures basically two, two scenes and two characters. That's all it is. It's two guys sitting on a park bench, really just kind of wondering about why they exist and why they're on this earth. And they're waiting for this guy named Godot. Right. Supposedly, he's got the answer. He knows the answer. So throughout this play, they're chit-chatting, you know, talking about things that vary from uh, minor to major, um, and they, they go on and on waiting for Godot, and guess who never comes? Godot never comes. So they're just, the, the, the play ends, and the curtain closes, and they're still waiting. You say, that is really boring. I'd rather watch Jurassic Park, you know, like, give me some kind of conclusion. Well, that's the point. Um, the man who wrote this, um, his name is Samuel Beckett. Um, he believed that life is absurd. That was his philosophy. He was a, an, an atheist. Um, he did not believe in God. He was something called an existentialist. He believed that, and that basically means there is no meaning to life, so we have to make it up for ourselves. Whatever we want to be or imagine, that's our meaning. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> right? Like So you could see... Um, just the incredible impact that th these kinds of ideas have had, had on modern Western civilization. Um, they go all the way back to men like uh, Soren Kierkegaard and Immanuel Kant and people that you probably don't ever want to hear of, right? But, um, and you're starting to fall asleep with me even mentioning their names. But th that's where these ideas come from, okay? He believed that life was absurd, um, that 
there is no way for us to really define any objective meaning to life. Um, so it's a waste of time to try to figure out what the meaning of life is. So that's why at the end of this, this play, they, they're waiting for Godot, because there is no answer. And frankly, it's kind of a waste of time that they're even waiting for him to begin with, because if there is no answer, you're going you're gonna to always be waiting and never be satisfied. Isn't that interesting? If that's true, um, does it matter how we live our lives, which directions we choose? If we, if we sort of make our own meaning, then the conclusion is that we get to decide what's right and wrong, um, what's, um, what's good for us or not good for us. Right? So we're sort of like the captains of our own soul, the lord of our own lives. We decide. Um, I remember hearing, um, uh, what, what was his name? Uh, Francis Schaeffer. He said, if there is no, no means by which to judge society, then society is judge. Does that make sense? If there is no way in which, um, if there's no truth that we can get outside of society, then society becomes that truth. So here we are. Is it, does, does it matter? Does it matter who we are? I think it does. Are we just protoplasm evolved by blind chance? Um, we want to ask this morning what the Christian worldview is of humanity. What does the Bible say about us? And we're going to basically talk about four things that the Bible describes human beings. The first thing is that we are a creation. The second thing is that we are the image of God. The third thing is that we are, uh-oh, fallen. And the fourth thing is that we are, yay, provided a rescue. Okay? This is how the Bible describes human beings. That we are a creation, we are made in the image of God, we are fallen, and we are potentially restored, rescued. So let's talk about this. Number one, firstly, we are a creation. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. The text reminds us of who is speaking here, the Lord. Um, the, the psalmist is considering how majestic the Lord is. So the text reminds us of the creator who sets the universe in motion, who creates the stars out of nothing, hangs them on nothing, names them all that prior had no names. That same Lord, O Lord, our governor, our Lord, that one created humanity. So humanity is first a creation by God. We're not just a created thing. We didn't just have a beginning. You know, some smart person could have made us, but they might not have been God. According to Scripture, God made us. That was the next step for us. It was God, then us. So God made us. God didn't make an angel and an angel made us. Does that make sense? So God, according to Scripture, we are not an accident. You have made them in verse 5. That's what our text says. You have made them. So we're not an accident. Our life is not an accident. We have a source, an intelligent and personal, not just an intelligent, not just a brain, not just a mind, but a personal God that loves us, that made us. And it's to this that we claim our very being, our very existence. So we're not, according to the Bible, what we say we are. We are what God has made us to be. That's a very different message. So if you've been with us and following this, um, we're not blenders. We are toasters. Okay? That's who God made us. Listen to last week's sermon. That will make sense. You have been made God by God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 26 to 27. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let us make man. So God is the author, the creator, the father of all of humanity. One author comments rather profoundly, I think, blind chance is nowhere taught in the Bible. We are specifically the result of a careful and purposeful deliberation by the members of the triune God. Isn't that wonderful? We're not an accident. Hebrews chapter 11 adds to this. Verse 3, this is in the New Testament of the Bible. That's the second half of your Bible. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So that means that God created the universe, ex is in Latin, ex nihilo, that means out of nothing. It did not exist before. He spoke it out of nothing. We're not told exactly all the mechanics of every living organism, how God orchestrated this, only that God is the creator. So man is a creation first by God. God made you. Not a snail, not an alien, not Captain Spock, right? You are made by God himself, the immortal one, the invisible one, the all-powerful one, the one who is described as all love and all justice. He made you. And he made you, number two, you are a creation by God, but you are a created material an immaterial being. A human being is created as material and immaterial. That is, you are not just a body. You are not just a blob of atoms, right? Um, you have a soul. You have a spirit. You have an inner person. So the human being is not just a body, not just flesh and blood. Genesis 2 says that God made us from the dust of the ground. In other words, we're material. We're physical, but it also says in Genesis 2 that God breathed the breath of life into the body. That, in other words, there's an immaterial nature of humankind. That is what is called the soul or the heart or sometimes the spirit. And it's in the heart, in Psalm chapter 63, that man thirsts for God. The reason that we actually think about God and desire him is because God created us to be immaterial, to have a soul and a spirit. And that's what makes us, the Bible says, have eternity in our hearts. So according to Scripture, we are created by God, both material and immaterial. And wow, watch this. He created us to be immortal, everlasting. That, mean, that means that death is an alien. Death should not have happened. God created us to live forever. Only upon man's sin came death. Only upon man's sin came death, which is separation from God. But before then, and otherwise, God created us to live forever. And actually, we learn from Scripture, as you continue to learn about Scripture, is that all people, and this is actually, I think, our seventh sermon in this series, um, we'll be talking about eternal life. We still get eternal life in one place or another. We'll get to there a little bit later even in this sermon. But C.S. Lewis, you know, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he was very popular in the 50s and still is. He said these amazing words um, to, I think, the uh, uh, graduating class at Oxford. He said, 
it is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to, now don't elbow the person on your side, right, or your husband and your wife, right? It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship it. Right? You know, the people that we snub, the people that we think are too loud, the people that we think are annoying, that you, right? They, they, they don't arrive places on time, they keep a messy car. Like all those people that tick us off that we think we're better than, that if you saw what they will be, you'd think it was God and worship it. You see, that's, that's what Lewis is saying here. And it, it resembles what we see in Scripture. Every time man sees an angel in Scripture, they think it's God and worships it, even Satan. Because it's so majestic and glorious. It's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature of which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Immortals, it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, lie to, manipulate. It's immortals that we do this to. He says, your neighbor is the holiest object you have ever seen in your life. That's who you are. That's a human being. And why is that? Well, number two, basically people are created in the image of God. Number two. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, you, that's you, created in the, according to the Bible, you are the image of God. Isn't that incredible? Not the chair, not the woolly mammoth, right? Not the pterodactyl or an elephant, right? Like all, all those amazing creatures. You are created in the image of God. Not even the angels. That role goes to you and you alone. So God created man in his own image, and his, in the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Oh, it simply means that of all of God's creation, Spanning, you, you look to the lowest microbe, to the highest angelic court, humankind most looks like God. If you want to know what God most looks like, you look to your neighbor. You don't look to the sky or to the stars or to the mountains. You look to the person sitting on the side of you. Isn't that incredible? One author described it like this. Man is a free, self-conscious, rational person like that of God. A nature capable of distinguishing right and wrong, of choosing right and rejecting wrong, and of ascending to the highest of spiritual communion with God. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. How are we like God? How are we the image of God according to Scripture? First, we are the image of God in our intelligence. God told Adam and Eve to name the animals. Right? We are similar to God. We are the image of God in our authority. He told the, the first created couple that they were to fill the earth and to subdue it, right? To rule over it like God rules over creation. We imitate him in this. In morality, Adam and Eve and you and I have a sense of right and wrong. Genesis chapter 3, they knew the difference, as, you, as do you and I. We're also separate from creation. We're not the same thing as a snail. I am not you and you are not me. We're different people. We cannot be all kind of lumped into the same category. 
We're not all one with nature, right? We're not all the same thing. We're individuals. So I am not you, and I am not God. Therefore, God is not me, and you are not me. But, but we are people that we are to know and to love, right? Also, we're like God in our volition. We can choose. We're free agents with the ability to go left or right, up or down, or choose between right and wrong. And divine, Also, we're like God in divine union or communion with God. In other words, we are able to love God, and he is able to love us on an intimate level. Not like I love a dog or not like I love cheesecake, right? We are able to love God but like we can love a friend. And that's what it means to be in the image of God. God in his nature is three, Father, Son, and Spirit. He has communion within himself. He creates us in his image so that we can love him like the union that he loves himself in. Does that make sense? So we are like God in all of these aspects of life. You know that no dog ever looked to the sky and wondered, where will I go when I die? I want a Scooby snack. Like no dog ever did that. No, no um, other creature has ever built a church. There are no dolphin synagogues. Right, and I'm kind of being silly, but why? Because we are created in the image of God, and they are not. We were created to know him and to love him. So we are conscious of him. You see? The image of God, the identity, this image is what gives you and I extreme value and worth. See, John Stott in Basic Christianity said it like this. Our chief claim to nobility as human beings is that we are made in the image of God. The reason why I shouldn't own slaves, the reason why I shouldn't think I'm better because I'm white, the reason why I, don't, I shouldn't think that I'm more superior because I have more money or smarter, or you'd fill in the blank, I have more power, is because all of us are created in the image of God. There are no half people. There are no people that are sort of left behind on the in the evolutionary process. It says in our text, you have made them a little lower than the angels. And what he's talking about there is their power, intelligence, and, and capability. But that is not what makes us like God, our degree of power. He says, you have made them a little lower than the angels, but you have crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them the rulers of the works of your hands. Why is it that we are told to rule over angels when they could beat us up. When, they're, when they run faster than us. Right? When they're smarter than us. You see, but we are told, you made them rulers over the works of your hands, you put everything under their feet. Humankind is God's special creation. Right? God's creation in the image of God. Yet, number three, we are fallen. You see, we are God's creation. We are made in his image, but we are fallen. That, that is what the Bible describes all humanity as, broken and fallen and separate from him. All that is wrong with the world is due to human sin, according to Scripture. All suffering, all pain, all sorrow, all tears, tears all injustice, all of it is the result of human sin. Even what we call natural catastrophe, 
as a result of living in a world that is broken because we have sinned against God and we are separate from him. Every act of disobedience and even every violation of your own conscience, according to Scripture, is a self-promoting usurping of God's authority in your life. In other words, we make ourselves God and we demote the God. That what's, that's what makes us broken. And you might challenge that. No, I don't do that. But I think that we all do it and I hope that you'll understand more as I go. The, uh, the human... Because of this, all of humanity is outside of God's presence and favor. Adam and Eve were told, you need to leave the garden. That's where the presence of God was. You need to leave the garden. And as God would appear to Israel later on, they made a tent for him. And he was in the inner part of the tent because Israel was not allowed to be in his holy presence because they were cut off. They were separate because of sin. So this is what happens. We are cast out of God's presence and favor As a free agent, Adam and Eve and all of us with them chose against God and assert our rule over his. We doubt his word. Did God really say? Remember this in Genesis 3? We don't believe him. You will not die. So, okay, I I believe someone else and not God. We believe something else. We doubt his word. We don't believe him. We believe something else in his place, and then we disobey. We do what we ought not to do. And the result of sin is an immediate separation from God, according to Scripture. We become aware of our fallenness. You remember, they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were separate. They sensed their own guilt in Genesis 3. They hid from God. They knew they were guilty. They knew there was something wrong with them and not everyone else in the world or even God. They had done something wrong. And how many people would ever hesitate to admit that in this room? You might not say it was against God. Maybe you're struggling with what, who God is. But you know on some level we're guilty of something. We know this. But it's in Scripture we're, we're, we're guilty of breaking God's law and it leads to physical and spiritual death. That is separation from God himself. So now we are all still image bearers of God. We don't lose that. But it's damaged. We've lost the will to worship only God. We have to be told not to worship things that aren't God as God. Imagine having to be told that. We desire his things more than him in Romans 1. The mind and the emotions and the will are now corrupted in Jeremiah chapter 17. The heart is deceitful and wicked who can trust it, it says. And the created world even becomes hostile and broken, so that even natural disasters are, res- are a result of God's curse of humanity's sin against him. We learn this in Genesis 3 and Romans 8 and many other places. And the word that the Bible uses to describe our condition is death. Romans chapter 5, death came to all men because all sinned. See, that's the kind of blanket description of everybody that's ever lived outside of God. You see, death came to all men because all sinned. Since all have sinned and fallen short, Romans 3, of the glory of God, no one is left unaffected. Now, why is sin so damaging? Let's, you say, I don't like this. I don't like the sound of this. This is offensive to me. Well, let, let's try to understand this. Why is this so damaging? First, God is holy and cannot look on sin. Let me try to explain to you um, what this means. Habakkuk um, 
chapter 1, verse 13, by the way, says this and many other places in the Bible. I heard a great illustration helping to try understand, to understand this. Imagine you're allergic to cats. Anyone's allergic to cats in the room? I am. I'm allergic to cats. But if you're allergic to cats like me, it's not that big a deal. It's just a little annoying. Right? You get your eyes itch and your nose runs, you sneeze, things like that. But like sometimes people are allergic where it's not that simple. It's like swell up and die allergic. Right? Some people are allergic to other things like that. Not just like this, I get a little tummy ache, right? But like if I eat peanuts, I need to go to the emergency room, right? So um, imagine you're allergic to cats, right? And like I said, not the kind of allergy that gives you itchy eyes, but like you're on your way to the hospital. Uh, as much as I, um, if that's me, if I'm allergic to cats like that, if, as much as I love you, if you have cats in your house, I can't be in your house. Your house is an environment that is offensive to my nature. See? Friends, this is an analogy, so analogies can only go so far, but try to follow this. God is holy, and sin is an environment that is offensive to his nature. He cannot exist in sin. He cannot exist in in injustice. And friends, if we're really honest, do we want a God that can course not. We want a God that is offended like we are at injustice, and he'll do something about it, right? We just don't want him to be offended with us. That's when we get mad. So here we go. Um, God is like this. It's against God's nature to allow injustice in his presence. We have to have the right environment, or he can't be near us. He can't be with us. Sin, sin is also damaging, though, because it pollutes your being, your entire being. And there's another really good analogy that I heard. Have you ever been at the gas pump, and you, you pull out the nozzle, and you, you, tr- you aim to stick it into your gas tank, and it's not going in? Oops, what's going on? Why isn't this fitting? This always fits. And you realize, what did you grab? The diesel, right? Someone was smart enough to know that we're dumb enough to not look at the nozzle we're grabbing, right? So they knew, (laughs) make the thing too big so it won't fit. I think maybe diesel engines might have trouble, though, because they can put the smaller one into there, a bigger one. But anyway, that's that's not usually... So what, what would happen, though, if you put that diesel fuel into your engine? That engine was not made for diesel fuel. It doesn't matter how awesome an engine, a muscle engine it is. It doesn't matter how great it is or elite it is. It doesn't matter if it's a Lamborghini, right, or a BMW or whatever it is, this elite kind of engine and car. You put that diesel fuel in that car, you might as well just make your car like a garden fixture in your yard because it's not going to work. You're going to break it because your engine is not designed for that. It's incongruous. It's offensive to that engine. Friends, if we are created in the image of God, sin is offensive to your engine. You can't run on it. How many people, think about it like this. This is a little more disgusting. How many people, you had a nice, you know, tall glass of water, it's a hot day, right, and all of a sudden a little bird flies by. (laughs) Boop! There's a little doo-doo in it, right? And you you say, well, you know, it's still like 99% water. Right? No. That glass of water is done. Because you put that in there, it pollutes the whole thing. 
You see, friends, that's what sin does to us. We can hem and haw about it. We can think that's not fair. I'm free. I want liberty. But if we're created by God in his image, you can mess with it. You can experiment. But it's to your own peril. It will bite back. And that's what we've seen, I think, in our lives and in human history. Sin is hostile. It's a hostile environment to God's nature, and it's hostile to your nature. Okay? Ephesians chapter, chapter 2 as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to live, gratifying the cravings of your flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That is the grim view of mankind's position outside of God's love. And it's deserved. See, that's, that's kind of bad news, isn't it? But there's good news. Because to only people, people are described in Scripture, humanity is described in Scripture as the only creation that God loved enough to actually save, to rescue. Ephesians 2 continues, But because of his great love for us, he made us alive. He drew us near. We were separate, now we're near. We're dead, now we're alive. We were away from him, now we're with him. Because of his great love for us, he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace through faith that you have been saved. So there is a condition. Not everyone is made right with Christ. It's by faith that you're made right with Christ. But that rescue is provided through Christ to human beings because you are the object of God's love and he wants to rescue you. We all sinned with Adam. We're all under the curse of sin. Yet in Christ, by faith, we are rescued and given life, no longer outside of relationship with God. Romans chapter 5. For if by the trespass, talking about Adam and Eve's sin, and the sin that we participate with them in when we sin, if by the trespass death reigns to all of us, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace reign in life through Christ? He wins you back. You reign in life again. The status that you lost as a pure and innocent, righteous creation of God in perfect relationship with him, separated from him, is given back to you so that you can know him again in all the purity of your soul. Jesus is the second Adam, the better Adam. He's the Brita water filter, right? after our water has been defiled. He's the, the cat exterminator. He's the HEPA air filter, right? He gets all of the junk in our environment out of the environment. It goes through him, and he stops it. Isn't that great? Man is created by God. He is the image of God. He has fallen from God, yet he is loved by God enough to be brought back by God himself. What a great word. Um, Tim Keller says this. I've said this before. The gospel is this. The gospel is simply the good news of Jesus Christ. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hoped. Isn't that great? I, I got a little diagram to sort of illustrate this this concept to you. Um, it seems a little confusing, but I'm going to explain it to you, okay? The, the frown faces and the smiley faces are, are us, 
That's us, okay? That, uh, that, that chair-looking thing is a chair, okay? It's actually a throne, um, so I'm symbolizing God with that, okay? I hope I didn't break the, what is it, the second commandment with that. But that's God, okay? So to the left, I'm better than God. I make my own decisions. Maybe there's a God, but he's way down there. He's sort of irrelevant in my life. He's very small, okay? And consequently, I am very miserable because I'm not God. But as I grow, as I move from left to right, when I get closer and closer to what the gospel is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, as I start moving from left to right, I start realizing I'm not as great as I thought I was. And God is better than I thought I was. I'm, he's still not in the right place yet, but I'm getting maybe a little bit less miserable because God's getting bigger in my life. I'm starting to realize who he is. But then there's a crossroad. That something happens. The Bible calls this faith where we believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior. We are not. That means we are not. He must increase, John the Baptist said. I must decrease. Didn't he say that? So now when we put faith in Christ, it's inverted. God and Christ is in his right place. He's the Lord. And we're under him. You see, um, at first, though, this is a progression of life, I think. As we grow in our faith and understanding of who God is, we always think we're closer to him than we are. In other words, we're not as bad. He's not as good as we think he, uh, as we realize, and we're not as bad as we realize. Right? So, but as we grow, we realize he's better than what I thought, and I'm worse than what I thought. You say, well, isn't that miserable? What a pessimistic outlook on life. So, you see, as faith in Christ, you start to realize, actually, um, I'm far away from God because he's above me and I'm below him. I'm far away from him, but I'm happy now. Isn't that interesting? Why is it that I realize that, oh, no, this is deserved. I'm far from God. It's my own fault because of sin, right? But now I'm, I'm getting happier because he's in his right place. And as I grow... I'm getting farther and far, I'm starting to realize, wow, I'm way farther away from God than I thought. He's way more holier than I thought. That's what that, that vertical arrow is meant to depict there, right? Like, I, I thought I was this far, but I'm actually this far. See, that's the Christian life. Your understanding of your own sin and unworthiness increases, and your understanding of God's holiness and righteousness consequently increases, and it makes you farther away from him than you thought. So how is that good news? Well, do you see on the right side, what also grows in our understanding of our distance from God is his cross. You see, friends, the farther away from God you are, the greater his grace needs to be to rescue you. Does that make sense? The thought, that's why that Christianity is the only religion that only in Christianity do we find the path to true joy in an increased understanding of our own sin and separation from God and guilt because, of his, because he is holy and righteous. And the reason for that is because the greater an understanding that we have of that, the greater an understanding and appreciation that we have of the cross of Christ, what he actually did. That, that, that was a long and complicated way to say this, right? If you owe me a dollar and I forgive the dollar, thanks, no big deal, I could have found a dollar. 
But if I forgive you a million dollars, your heart's going to swell in appreciation to me because you know you owed it, right? See, that's what happens in salvation. That's what happens in the progress of spiritual life when you finally get it. God is Lord, holy, and good. I am not Lord. I'm far from him. I've rebelled against him, and it's deserved. But there's a cross. There's a cross, and the more I get him and the more I get myself, the bigger that cross gets. Isn't that great news? That's why it's such good news, and hopefully you understand a little better now what Keller meant. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. You see, in other words, we were way at the left side of that. Now we're on the right. We're more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hoped. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the rescue that he provides. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Because where sin increased, where sin increased, I'm, see, I'm more on the right side of this now, where it increased, grace abounded all the more. Friends, if you don't understand that God is holy and that you're a sinner, you don't even need him. You're fine. But you see, when you, when you start to realize that the problem with the universe is not your neighbor and it's not God, it's you, you start to realize that what's happening here, how much you need the cross, how much you need to be rescued, how much you need him, that's the human condition solved by God in Christ at the cross. The grace of 1 Timothy chapter 1, the grace of, a, of our Lord has been poured out on me abundantly. He's got a big cross. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am worst. I am chief. See what's happening? He's growing in his faith and he's starting to realize how big a sinner he is. That's that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound how we make ourselves feel better to, to understand how bad off we are. That's not the way of the world. That's not the zeitgeist, right? That's the German word for the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age is rehearse with yourself how wonderful you are, how great you are, how good you are, how kind you are. But in Scripture, the way to joy is to understand the depth of God's rescue. And the only way to understand the depth of God's rescue is to really have a grasp on his holiness and your fallenness. That's it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. He rescued us anyway. So, friend, humanity is God's special creation made in his image, fallen and separate from God, yet provided the superabounding grace of Christ. That is what a human being is. I hope that's good news to you. I hope that you realize this morning that that means something very simple. You matter. You're important. And you're no less important than me because I hold this and you sit there. You're no more or less important because of your bank account or because of the color of your skin or your intelligence. You matter. The issue of who you are and the issues of life and death are not irrelevant. You don't live and die like a beast Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever lives and believes in me 
will never die, never be separated from me forever. That's what he means there. Everybody is an eternal soul. But you will either live eternal life with Christ or eternal death away from him, called hell. Who are you? I hope that you can answer that question a little more clearly according to Scripture. You were created purposefully by God to love and be loved by him, created in his own image. You have a never-ending value because you were the only created thing that God, you were the reason God sent his son to die on the cross. He didn't do it to save animals or trees. He did it to save you. And when he saves you, by the way, he saves animals and trees. We learn that in the Old Testament. God has provided a way to bring you back to the place you never should have left and the choice is yours to believe or not. I hope that you will. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we say again with Scripture, what is man? that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put put everything under their feet. What is man, God? God, we are your image created by you fallen but provided a rescue and friends god if there's anyone here today that doesn't know christ if you don't know christ friend would you turn to him and trust him let the cross bridge the gap between the distance that exists between you and your maker trust that all of the payment that you owed him was paid in christ at the cross for you he took the death you deserved and provided a cross a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to to the Father but through me. Cry out to God in the silence of your own heart, dear God, save me a sinner. I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. I want to be with you. Friend, if that's you, you are one with Christ by grace through faith. God, I pray, Lord, that we would remember every day who you've made us to be, and what you've done for us. Pray, Lord, now that you bless us as we take your communion.